1: I think to me, in a certain way, the bass is, first of all, I'm huge on rhythm and rhythm of any kind. You can talk about crazy five four seven four thirteen eight 13 8 whatever, or just four on the floor or six, eight time, the syncopation or right on the beat. Rhythm is a huge part of me. And if there was one skill that I had early on, It wasn't singing, it wasn't really piano, it was rhythm. It was always having a great sense of rhythm. And bass is so important to the rhythm and to the foundation of the song. And in a way it's almost like a a voice, not so much in tone, but in the fact that most of the time you're playing a single note the way the human voice does, and you can be very simple, kind of laying down a, an ostinato, or something repetitive, or you can create melodic basses the way, again, people like Paul McCartney did, or a lot of people in the kind of new wave world. And and I also think there, the, the feel of it helps me lock into the rhythm. And frankly, I find of all the instruments, maybe except for piano, it's the easiest to sing along with when I'm singing.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. We are getting off the Bruce train, though I'm sure he will come up. I have a musician, a podcaster, an all-around great guy joining me tonight. Nick, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Jesse. It's great to be here.
2: Yeah. Tell
1: us a little about yourself. I was born in Philadelphia, grew up in New Jersey. I live here in New York City. I've been here for about 23 years. And I've been in the music world my entire life. My dad is a professional musician. He's still gigging a couple of times a week at the age of 81. So out there making it work. Nice. Uh, and I, I grew up in the nightclubs and casinos and places where he would play, just watching him do his thing and in the recording studios and just absorbed all that. And Decided pretty early on that what I wanted to do was create my own music. So most of my life has been dedicated towards uh, writing and recording and performing the music that I create.
2: So you've answered the first question, but I'm going to go in a little more in depth. I usually ask your origin story. Talk about where you grew up and what kind of music were you listening to. And you've mentioned your dad made music. Did though your mom be a music fan? And was there a wide amount of types of music in the
1: household? I love that question. I absolutely love that. It goes along a lot with, and I know we'll talk about this later, but my podcast is music is not a genre. And the whole idea is that's how I grew up. And no, my mom is not musical in any way, but she's always loved music and been a a pretty in-depth music fan from the long, even before my dad met her. And at home, we would listen to pretty much any kind of music that you could think of was somehow being incorporated at home. My dad would create mixes with the turntable where he'd stack LPs and one might be salsa music and one might be jazz and one might be classical. And that's the kind of mixes that we would have at home, just lounging around in the den.
2: Did you... There's two, if I generalize people guests on the show nick there's two types the types that embrace their parents music and as they grew up they just expanded their range or the people that rebelled against their parents music and went and found their own and then came back in their 30s going oh Maybe this Johnny Cash guy was okay to begin with. <laughs> ah,
1: nice. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. So if I had to throw you in one or the other categories, I'm taking you'd be more the first?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There there was never a time where I felt the need to reject the music that my dad grew up with, my mom, in particular because they had such wide tastes. I was just talking about this with my wife we were listening to an interview with uh, Paul McCartney and someone and one of the interviewers said, who doesn't know some of your music somehow somewhere in the world? Mm-hmm. We both don't remember a time where we didn't know the Beatles. So my dad was a huge Beatles fan. My mom, hugely into jazz and early electronic music, and they both liked folk music. And even though I sure did embrace punk and disco and techno and new wave and all the things that came afterwards and metal and all of that, and have incorporated a lot of that into my music. It wasn't as a response against what my parents liked. It was basically just let's add more to the pot, you know?
2: So you mentioned you've listened to music. You've been part of the music business your whole life. Did you know it was in your genes? You always wanted to make music right from the beginning?
1: I, I yeah, yeah, I must have because there is a piece of paper somewhere, I don't know where it is, with lyrics that I wrote when I was six years old. And there is a cassette somewhere that my parents have of me singing the song that I wrote. So I must have written the melody at least and the lyrics. I, did, I didn't know chords at the time. So from a pretty early age, that's what I was doing.
2: What? Did you take up an instrument?
1: Yeah my dad so my dad's primary instrument was always piano he sings and plays a solo piano drum machine and his voice and that's his whole act and so i learned piano for most of the my preteen and teen years and then picked up acoustic guitar in high school electric guitar in college and then bass a few years after that. And I just keep adding, I've been doing drums lately for my next album, stuff like that. But right now in my in the band that I perform in most, it's bass. And that's become my favorite instrument other than voice. But I grew up playing the piano.
2: What about the bass spoke to you?
1: I think to me, in a certain way, the bass is, first of all, I'm huge on Rhythm a rhythm of any kind. You can talk about crazy five four seven four thirteen eight whatever, or just four on the floor, or six eight time, the syncopation, or right on the beat. Rhythm is a huge part of me, and if there was one skill that I had early on, it wasn't singing, it wasn't really piano, it was rhythm. It was always having a great sense of rhythm, and bass is so important to the rhythm and to the foundation of the song, and in a way, it's almost like a, a voice, not so much in tone, but in the fact that most of the time you're playing a single note the way the human voice does. And you can be very simple, kind of laying down a, an ostinato, or something repetitive, or you can create melodic basses the way, again, people like Paul McCartney did, or a lot of people in the kind of new wave world. And and I also think there, there there's the feel of it helps me lock into the rhythm. And frankly, I find of all the instruments, maybe except for piano, it's the easiest to sing along with when I'm singing.
2: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Because McCartney was a bass player. Brian Wilson played bass. Very nice. Yeah. Because you often hear, you'll hear stories of bands, right? And okay, we don't have a bass player. You, go learn to play the bass, right? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, yes, that's very true. And what's funny is even though, and I, I actually had a the, the first, I have my band's name is Rec, And yep. we formed in 2004, and this is my most recent, is it's Wreck Collection, the best of Wreck okay. 2007-2020. And we needed a bass player, and one of my guitarist's girlfriends could not play bass, but she wanted to be in the band, and she picked it up, and within a pretty short amount of time, learn the bass well enough to to gig with us so <laughs> there is some truth to that for sure <laughs> but
2: then people like gary talent and others make it look so what they do is so important to the music right to so, bringing it back to Garrett, to bruce from the e-street band yeah. and gary just sits there just as a base a bass as in the underlying foundation
1: Absolutely. And I I want to mention something about Springsteen in a second, but I will say that last week I saw The Cure in concert. And the only two remaining original members are Robert Smith, the singer, and Simon Gallup, the bass player. And he speaks with his bass the way Robert Smith sings with his voice. And the two of them are integral to that band. And speaking of Springsteen, he's somebody that I just simply, again, grew up knowing because I'm from New Jersey. And so even though by the time I was old enough to know what what Springsteen was, he was already relatively famous. It was still pre, you know, the big 80s years and all of that. And we just grow up saying, oh, yeah, that's a hometown guy, a home state guy.
0: Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win.
2: And just like
1: that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package.
0: And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S.
2: I often find this when I'm talking to people that grew up in Jersey, that Asking them when they first discovered Bruce is like asking, when did you find out your parents used Tide washing detergent, right? It's just always there. He did, it, yeah, it's just there. Very true. Yeah. Did you went through a path where you tried to do something besides music for a living? Or you're one of those that, nope, music is what I want and that's what I'm going to do.
1: Uh, I've never not done music, but there have been times where I have definitely taken other jobs. This sort of counts or doesn't count. I taught music for a while, private lessons. It's a very common thing the musicians who are doing fairly well still do that. They enjoy that. Yeah. I haven't taught in a while, but I do, I got into podcasting because I originally, other than I like to talk, I originally had a pretty extensive career in the audiovisual world. I was the manager of the audiovisual department at the Bronx Zoo for a number of years. Ah,
2: interesting.
1: Yeah, and and yet those were all supplemental to anything that I was doing with music. So it's every couple of years, I put out a new album. I'm never not performing in one way or another, whether it's online with the cover band that I frequently play with or with my own music. It's, It's always a part of my life.
2: So you mentioned, at six, writing a song. Um, yes. Do you remember the first song that you're proud of, though? Yeah. And you may have been proud of that six-year-old, that one when you were six. Yeah. may have been damn proud of that as a six-year-old.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes,
2: yeah. I nailed it.
1: <laughs> oh, man. That's a really hard question, because it depends on the your age, right? Like it, When yeah. I was six, I remember the first line of that song was, 1974 was cold, but today is warm. I don't know what that meant, but at six years old, I was pretty. That's you know, a pretty proud good
2: line.
0: Yeah,
1: you're yeah. not bad. And then in middle school, I wrote a song called a new song, and I loved it so much that I got friends together and we did an acapella version of it in class. Oh, because nice! I... But I would say probably the first time where I thought to myself, "Oh, I could do this for a, a, a living," was I was geez, fourteen or 15, I think it was fifteen, and. My dad knew a lot of and knows a lot of the music industry people in the Philadelphia area and all of that. And I wrote a song after having read the book Hiroshima by John Hersey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I called it uh, Radiation Blues. And it was a kind of a tongue in cheek song, which used some of the ideas from that. But it was it wasn't meant to be serious at all. And it was a blues song. And my dad liked it so much. He's we're booking a studio getting in you and you're going to do this. So I was in a studio in Philly at the age of 15 and recorded my first song. And I thought, oh, I could do this. Wow. I really want to do this. Do you have that recording? I do. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's very cool. Back then, you couldn't just find anything online. There was no real online. So they had to go to archives to find things that we needed that weren't there. And one of the things I wanted the song to start with the sound of an atom bomb explosion. And as it was tailing off, the blues comes in and you start doing that and they found that. And so to this day of the recording, it starts out with an actual explosion and goes right into the song.
2: Do, it sounds not only do you have composing both the lyrics and the music medley, but, it sounds like arrangement was something you found really early too.
1: Wow. Yes. Yes. My dad recorded, he predominantly did other people's music, and he was actually a pretty well known rock and roll star in the 60s in the Philadelphia area. He had one national hit that charted in the top 100. His name's Nicky DiMatteo. There's stuff out there about him. But in the 70s, he decided to record. An album of original music, and he got investors and, and an arranger and producer and all of that. And so I'm this small child. He would take me to the studio, and at the, even at that age, I was not just listening to, oh, this is a good song, or what was the what was the what were the words? Why did they play the piano there? Why were the backup harmonies here? And there was a song where they couldn't decide whether they wanted this backup harmony or that backup harmony. And I went to my dad, I was like, you could do both. You could just layer them together. When I was like eight years old. So even from that early age, production, when when people ask me what I do, if I'm talking about music, I usually say I'm a music creator and producer. And because those are the two most important things to me, music-wise.
2: Yeah, I, it's, that's a true talent, right? To be able to see that, to be able to picture that jigsaw of sound the way, like Brian Wilson did it with Pet Sounds, right? That just these little pieces that you don't you don't really know they're there, but you feel them, right? Oh
1: God, yeah, yes. And I think that early on, I made a, a lot of the mistakes that producers, young producers, make, which is. Whatever I heard, I put in the song, and I put everything in, and it, and it would become too layered, too much. A little, it would obscure the, the the simplicity of the song, or what have you. And so, a lot of it is finding that inspiration. And there are times where I've listened to a song and heard something. Oh, there's a neat thing, and go back and listen again, and it's not there. I'm like, oh, I must have just imposed that mentally with it, orally onto the song. And knew that's gotta be in there because if I'm already hearing it, it's gotta be in that song. But then I might think of 10 other ideas and I need to know that's gonna that's gonna take away from the overall picture of the song. And this is too much. You can't hear the voice here well enough. It's all of that. And so it's just like they say with with writing or editing for a film. I used to edit for film, is they say, kill your darlings. Yeah. You need to be able to know yeah. when you this beautiful thing you created is actually a detriment to the overall work
2: that was exactly what i was going to bring up and so i'm so glad you did you'll hear people talk about especially script writers okay you may have to take out your favorite joke because it's not serving the script j michael stravinsky who is created babylon five and has written for tons of stuff and he has a book's script writing and one of the pair, one of the chapters is about editing, and he shows the whole edit process. In other words, the whole chapter, he starts, and he shows all the editing so to see how he got to the finished product to show you how much we're doing. Yes. I'm curious. I went through a spell where I was listening to a lot of writers on podcasts, TV writers, film writers. <laughs> and showrunners and they talked about that if they worked on a drama series they couldn't watch other drama series because in their mind they're editing it and this oh why did they do the ad break there and I don't know if I would have done that a teaser so they tend to watch a lot of situation comedies Right. Because they don't yeah. think that way. Same thing. Situation comedy writers, showrunners will watch the cooking channel. Right. They, they need it. So <laughs> do you have that issue sometimes with enjoying music that it's hard for you not to second guess it?
1: You, you, well, I, yeah, in, in the sense that there's a period in my process where I, and, and I don't know it's coming and then I, I see it the weeks later. Where I just I realize, oh, I've stopped listening to music. And it's because there's too much going on in here. And that's just going to to distract or add elements that I that are unintended or things that I might lift from there that I don't want or, or what have you. And that's just the, the natural part of the process. It doesn't and then usually it's prior to me recording. And and when I'm generating the ideas for the songs and the production and all of that, I've done all my absorption. I've listened to everything. And on my podcast, I'll do periodic episodes where I'll be like, here are the albums I've listened to. And I went through maybe 15 or 20 episodes and realized I hadn't done one in a while. I'm like, oh, because I'm working on a new album. And as soon as I started working on the album, which was a couple of months ago, I started listening to music again because I'm like, all right, I've got everything I need now. It's not going to be a distraction anymore. In fact, it might feed some energy into me, but I needed that period of silence.
2: So, talk about the podcast. When did you decide to do a podcast and what were you hoping to accomplish?
1: I was working on a, a follow up to an album I released in 2015 and didn't know what to call it because I wanted to branch out from the normal music that my band has done. And so I was brainstorming and thought, these demos are going to be called uh, Music is Not a Genre. And at the same time, I started blogging about the new album that had come out because I wanted to promote it and talk about it and whatever and get attention and, and all of that. And those two things converged at the end of 2019 My wife was like, you love talking about music. Why don't you do a podcast? All right, I'll give it a try. And I started it then. And it really started to gel more in 2020, 2021. And while I was doing it, maybe 20, 10, 15 episodes in, I realized the name of those demos, which is not going to be the name of that next album, is the perfect name for the podcast because... There's no limit to what i will or want to talk about i've talked to, to people who do classical music who are just into specifically opera or jazz or folk or anything there's no limit to the kind of music that i want to talk about and even though i there's nothing i know everything about and there's a lot of things i know nothing about or very little about i usually know a, enough of something to be able to have a decent conversation Or to break down an album or an artist's body of work. And once I realized that, especially during the pandemic, I couldn't go out to a bar and talk to my good friend and co-producer or whatever about music, why don't I just do it with anybody who's out there? Mm -hmm. It's like a conversation.
2: Yeah. So what are some examples of some episodes you've done? Is it just a conversation between you just get a musical guest and you guys just... Shoe the fat.
1: No, no, actually, it took till about season. I'm on season five now. It took till about season three, I believe, Impressive. to even introduce uh, thank you. To introduce guests. And I started an interview series in within my series. I've done 32 of them so far. Okay. But most of my episodes are just me. I also do video sitting in front of the you know camera and the microphone, and I have sub-series. I just, I'm almost done a six part series on the Beatles where I broke it down by their certain eras and then their post Beatles era and all of that. I do another series on books. So I'll be discussing, there's a guy who wrote a book about the mamas and the papas that I met through our same network. I'm going to be talking to him and interviewing him. And then I talk about books that I've read. I do another series called Death is Dumb, where I talk about an artist who's, Presence, I dearly miss John Lennon or somebody like this guy named Adam Schlesinger who wrote for Fountains of Wayne. And just, I've done maybe a dozen of those. And then the rest of the podcast is me saying, what's interesting me right now? Am I listening to something new that I'd love to, or from a band that's been around forever that just put a new album out like Depeche Mode or somebody like that, or Metallica or, or whoever. And then honestly, the bulk of the podcast is me just looking at my collection and saying, okay, I want to talk about this band now. So I've done full deep dives on U2 or The Cure. Uh, You'll see a lot of 80s and 90s in there, but you also see some 60s and 70s artists. It goes everywhere.
2: Who haven't you discussed yet that you feel like you owe a deep dive to?
1: Oh, boy. Eddie? Jeez. Yeah. I could, oh, I want to do an episode on, I'll give you two. One would be the Kinks, because they are a bit of, in some ways, unsung heroes as far as the British Invasion goes, because they were like fourth tier behind like the Beatles and Stones. yeah, And yet they are they rank for me higher than some of those. And just the way they crafted music really s- spoke to me. And you don't see a lot about them. And then, the, and then the other guy that I want to do a, a dive into is Beck in particular, because there have been lots of different critics and writers and reviewers who have said that my music sounds like Beck in, okay, in, in a lot of ways. And so I'm like, I think I need to look into that because I do know Beck as far as his music goes, but I don't, I have never dived into all of the things that he's done. So those are two perfect examples.
2: Do you have a preference of an episode you like better? Do you like going on a solo journey or do you enjoy the guest episodes? Ah, and you don't have that's... to choose. It just I'm <laughs> curious if there's one or the other.
1: What I love about the solo episodes is I do all this research and I just get to riff on a band or an artist and, and just show my love and appreciation for that artist and reveal things. A perfect example, one of my Death is Dumb episodes was on a guy named Terry Kath, who amazing guitarist for Chicago, and not many people know who he is because people think of Chicago as the 80s band and they don't know their 70s and 60s work. And when you listen to what Terry Kath did, Jimi Hendrix himself said he was the greatest guitarist of, of that generation. That That's how good he was and his vocals and just everything he contributed to that band. That's currently my highest ranking uh, episode on YouTube. And to be able to dive into that, uh, to show, to give people insight into either lesser known artists or well-known artists, but they're more obscure works. They're, when I do cover tunes, I'll do, I'll pick the Beatles, I'm so tired, or Hey Bulldog, as opposed to She Loves You or Let It Be. I'll pick the slightly more obscure right. songs. At the same time, I'm getting to a point now where I would prefer conversation. I prefer to have more guests on. I That's why I made the call who can come on to my show. I'd love to talk to you. I'm starting a new kind of discussion series next month with a guy who's a critic and a creator himself, music creator. And we're gonna be talking about South African music in particular, because that's something that he knows quite a bit about. And instead of me doing hours and hours of research and having my notes in front of me and riffing on that, I'll get to talk to somebody and ask them questions and we can find that synergy and excitement in just two people together talking.
2: Yeah. I just, I have certainly done solo episodes, but overall i I just love the conversation. I loving yeah. having somebody on and sharing their excitement and their joy about either their favorite band or their favorite musician or even creators and i've really had a good luck nikki i nick i was i was at a i ended up getting a couple of guests that have a huge business background and they've been like i don't have to talk about The infrastructure, I can just talk about Van Morrison. Yes, you could just talk Van Morrison. And we went through an hour just talking about how much Van's music meant to him. Or a guy talked about how he heard the Rolling Stones and it was that was it. It went in there. And and I just think music is so personal to us. Mm. It really is. And that's why I was thrilled to pull the curtain back a little bit when the guys from Pantheon reached out and said, Hey, we don't have a Bruce show. Would you want to join us? And I'm like Ugh. a group of people who do nothing but talk about music. I'm in,
1: I'm in. And I just, I did my the two interviews ago. I interviewed Christian Swain and people don't know he's the Pantheon yeah. guy. Mainly one they wanted two of them. And we talked about that. And what I said to him was, I'm I'm so thrilled that I'm a part of Pantheon primarily because he has something like a hundred podcasts or, or something, but there's no theme to them other than music. Yes. They go everywhere. And I I that that's what I love to do.
2: Yeah, and we were talking about this. I love set lessing Bruce and I have a, a blast, but me and Sylvan talk john hyatt every other week and we do we're going through john hyatt a through z and it gets no downloads right it just but we figure the people that are downloading it are passionate hyatt fans and that's okay josh whedon who we realize now probably not the greatest guy but he mentioned once that he wanted he didn't want to be liked by millions, but he wanted to be loved by a thousands. He wanted Buffy the Vampire Slayer to have this passionate fan base of a smaller group that adored it versus a lot of people going, oh, that's pretty good. And and I I think, yeah, I do too. By the way, I graduated high school in 77. When you mentioned Chicago, I absolutely remember those eras. Good. and uh, Chicago Nine with their greatest hits. And, oh, oh, yeah! I just paint
1: bucket and all. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes,
2: yes, right. yeah. And I do remember when he died, and there was a lot wow. of discussion about that. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. older than dirt. Like I said, I graduated high <laughs> school in '77, so <laughs> no, I, man, yeah. I love
1: uh, that you remember that. That's incredible. Yeah, you know, I, I knew enough. of, I knew of them enough in the '70s to know that they were around and yeah. their big hits, but. I didn't really get into that era of Chicago until college. And and, and I, to the point where I absorbed it album after album and couldn't stop. And to this day, I still, I've already done two episodes on them. I probably do another one.
2: Oh yeah. Cause they're just, there's something special. I was lucky enough last summer, they, Brian Wilson was touring with them and they had Brian open and brian wilson was not doing well physically Mm. but the band is amazing by the way i had david leaf who is brian's if he has an official biographer i asked him do you think brian will keep touring and he said brian tours for three things one he loves being on stage and hearing the band sing his music and perform it so well Mm. two he adores feeling the love from the audience how much they enjoy all those Beach Boy songs, all the songs mm. he's done. And three adores room service.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I get that. I totally get that. I'm yeah. like, yeah, those are three great reasons for me. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. But Chicago came on afterwards and it, it was I had seen them years ago when they toured with the Beach Boys. Same mm-hmm. thing. And so it was amazing to the amount of songs they've done, the great arrangements. It, yeah, it was just it was a fun show.
1: And it's a band that that I, I talk about this a lot on my podcast. I tend to gravitate to bands who don't stay in one lane yes. and they, they really didn't. No. You know, you can listen to a song from the first, I don't know, let's say seven albums and it's going to be very different from something from 8 or 10 or 11, which will be different from the period after Kath died where they went into a little bit of disco and were finding their way, which was different from the eighties. And even within one album, pick an album, especially in the early period and they did classical and jazz and blues and rock. And and that's like a kindred spirits for me.
2: Yeah. And Nick, it, I think that goes back to the title of your podcast, right? Music is not a genre. There are artists like Bowie that reinvented themselves right they wanted to do the beatles did different things and i love that there is something about a consistency of an elton john or someone or a james taylor boy a james taylor song Mm -hmm. is going to sound like a james taylor song love Love james taylor i'm not doing it but there is that because it makes it harder to market right if you don't have a consistent sound the record companies, I don't know how to sell you and I don't want to be sold. I just want to, these are the music I want to
1: make. Yeah. Right. No, You. it goes back to what you said that Joss Whedon said. And coincidentally, I'm listening to this other podcast called Smartless with Jason Bateman, Sean Hayes, Will okay. Arnett, and they were interviewing Sarah Silverman and they asked her why she chose the projects she chose. And she said, I'd rather be niche because it allows me to do the things I love the most and then not worry about how big a star I am or anything like that. And I think there are people who can do, Bowie did both. It took him a few years to get there. And yeah. I did a, an episode on him and I was on somebody else's podcast about him. M- most artists, it is it is an either or. And I, I think yeah. that if there's one thing that's that took me a while to embrace with my own music is that I was never meant to sound like one thing. And anytime I tried to do that, it it never came out as close to the the heart and soul of my music as when I just let it fly. And if that's made it more difficult to be marketed or whatever else it is, that's okay. Because go back to that quote, I'd rather be super yeah. beloved by a small group than just liked by everybody else.
2: So Aaron Sorkin was being interviewed and they he talked about that, He was asked to write the the script, not screenplay. The script, the play they were going to redo *To Kill a Mockingbird* for Broadway. And the first draft they pushed back, and Aaron said he realized he was doing Harper Lee's greatest hits. Basically, he just and he said no. If I'm going to give justice to the story. I need to tell it in a unique way. And so I think that's you don't want to sound. I don't want to be a James Taylor because we already got a James Taylor. Yeah, yeah. We need to be a a Nick DiMaggio, right? You need to do that. So let's talk a little bit about your music. Uh, Talk to me about what you're working on. Tell me some stories from the music.
1: Oh, great. Yes. Yeah. Like I said, I have a band called Wreck and we've been, it's revolving cast of characters behind the scenes, but it's primarily just a vehicle for me to write and perform and produce my music. And prior to that, I was a solo artist for a number of years. I've done film music and incidental music for independent films and certain other projects and things like that. And it, I guess the the main thrust of everything I do is exploration is the ability to make accessible anything I can think of so if, if there's something that I find really interesting and obscure it's a weird rhythm or there's a, a esoteric lyric listen artists who are who do that and that's their lane and they don't care how accessible it is. I love that too. And I listen to those artists. But the ones that impress me the most are, again, artists like, let's say the Beatles, who, if you don't know the Beatles, you think of them as just writing pop songs. And the subtleties within what they did are they, the more you listen, the more they grab you. That's the kind of music I like to create, whatever it is. And this next album I'm working on is one of these, I'm only doing it for me. Like I, I want to go back to the roots of everything that I loved and forget about trying to stay in, in one lane, but how can I also make it cohesive and start from this obscure polyrhythmic instrumental that opens the album going to something that is in the realm of elect- electronica or techno or pop morphing that into an instrumental, which then morphs into something that sounds more like acoustic rock or grunge or whatever, and somehow get from point A to point Z. And if you listen through, you can't believe that you got from here to there. And yet it all just flows together.
2: And I think that's to be complimented because, and now I'm going to sound like a grumpy old man. Albums are, are a lost art. In this signal, in this in this streaming world, there was a a couple of guys from the network. Did why you don't do greatest hits anymore? Right, record companies don't (laughs) usually put out greatest hits anymore because you don't need it. Right, you just go to you pick the songs you want on your streaming service, and there you go. Um, So yeah, I love the idea of you're going. I'm going to take my listeners on a journey. And we're going to go from point A to point C and go from there. That's cool.
1: Thank you. Yeah. My last project was uh, like my pandemic baby and it was five, it was four EPs and a full album and each one was very programmatic. I want to do lo-fi ambient music. I want to do hard electronica. I want to do just straight up rock. I want to do R&B and hip hop or something like that. And then power pop is one of my favorites and it's my home is, power pop in a lot of ways. And I liked that because I got to stay in those lanes and and explore them to the fullest. But that's not really where I live the most. And next week, I don't know when this is airing, but as of this recording, my podcast next week is going to be the first in a series of me discussing the album decade by decade, going over some seminal albums, in particular albums that might mean something to me, but discussing the state of the album in general. And it starts with where the idea of albums came from, when they started to develop, when they peaked, when they started to slowly wane, why they did, how now in the last 10 years there have been artists who have rededicated themselves to creating albums instead of a collection of songs. Even when I reviewed and did my part series on the Beatles, six-part series, I ended the fifth part prior to them breaking up with me saying, what were my favorite albums? And I differentiated between the album as a work of art or just an awesome collection of songs. So you go to like an Abbey Road or a Revolver where that's just a work of art. It just flows in a certain way. Or you go to Magical Mystery Tour where every single song in that album is a hit. Yeah. But it's a collection of songs. And that was intended that way because it was the soundtrack to the movie. There's nothing against that. so. It's It encourages me that after the advent of MP3s and eventually streaming and all of that, and the album was an afterthought, that there are young, younger artists who are, who are finally remembering that it it's a separate consideration from great songs. A great album is not the same as just having great songs.
2: Yeah, very well done. And when are you going to start that? That'll be so next I'm- week.
1: I'm as we're see- recording
2: this, it's June 27th as we record oh, this.
1: Thank yeah, you. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm, I am now almost seven songs in, and it's probably going to be in the, honestly, in the area of 15 songs, something like okay. that. So I'm about done side one. Okay. I'm on the, the transitional song that leads to the next phase or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. I had intended to release it. Last month. So that's not working out. My hope is to be able to release it by the fall, but that depends on whether or not I get the, I'm looking, uh, I'm shopping around for somebody to mix and master it. Cause even though I've done that myself, I'd prefer another set of years. Sure. That makes sense. If that happens. That's going to add several weeks or a couple months, at least. to sure. the process. So I haven't set a release date, but I'm going to be releasing singles throughout the year.
2: Nice. Yeah. What should I have asked you that I haven't, Nick?
1: Oh, man. Bad question, for starters, because that's an awesome question.
2: (laughs) Let me, while you're thinking, I'll give you the background. So I had a guy on the podcast, and we had a nice talk. It was good. And I quit recording, and I said, hey, thanks for being on. I hope you had fun. He goes, yeah. He said, next time on, I'll have to tell you when I got drunk with the E Street Band. Excuse me? (laughs)
1: Whoa. What? what, what, what
2: <laughs> how do you not leave oh, with that man. story so just in case you've gotten drunk with the e street band i want to ask you that question
1: oh, man no in fact and in fact i've rubbed elbows with a few well-known people my dad grew up in the neighborhood and was good friends with frankie avalon fabian bobby rydell and chubby checker and so i've met a few of those guys and he had the same manager for a while that John Whitehead from McFadden and Whitehead had a lot of Philly people. And so I got to work with him once and everything. But I think the one thing that people have been mentioning lately is I'm also an actor and I did a film recently where I got to play a guitarist slash comedian in the late sixties, early seventies. And I won't spoil what happens to my character, but it's a film called the many saints of Newark. Which was the prequel to the Sopranos series? Yes, it's you never know. It's usually, when someone finds that out, they're like, "Oh, wow!" And it was two days of my life, but it was it was fun because I got to meet one of my children's favorite people which is Leslie Odom Jr. because he was in Hamilton and he's got an amazing, just an amazing voice. And my interview last week was with a guy who actually got to work on a couple of his albums and I was thrilled to talk oh, to this guy. yeah, I bet. You know, and he was, everybody I met on the set was nice, but I got to sit and talk to him and he was in half in character, so we didn't talk much. But when you see the movie and see even his acting is as good as his music. You know? Oh,
2: yeah, I, I, we really liked the film we did and so that's cool
1: that's a nice little thing
2: to be part of the soprano universe
1: yeah it's almost like if you've been in the business long enough and you're an italian on the east coast you better hope somehow (laughs) you're a part of that universe yeah Yeah. that's great fortunate pretty fortunate
2: all right if someone wants to find out more about the podcast more about your music what's the best way
1: I think com would be the easiest way because that's got links to everything. It's got a page for the podcast, a page for the music, for the everything. So, yeah. And I can send you that if you want to link
2: it. Yeah. But. And go ahead plug your
1: Patreon. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Patreon.com slash music is not a genre. Absolutely. Please join me there. I've got so much that's coming out in the next few weeks. I've already released so many exclusives and early releases and things. And just honestly, Again, it's the conversation between the people and, and and being able to get input from them onto what I'm doing. That's the most thrilling part.
2: Yeah, I, I have, as we joked before I recorded that I put the video up for my patrons and I not only are, but I think of them as my executive committee, right? Like I can often send out something to them and go, hey, do you guys think this is a good idea? What do you think if it's a bad idea? And, and then- And you build that trust with, no. if this sucks, I need you to
1: tell me it sucks. God, yes, absolutely. Like I said, I'll talk about anything. And usually it's from, oh, this is what's on my mind this week. But if somebody mentions something, I'm like, oh, my God, that would be great to talk about. And someone did that once where they were like, I'd like to know more about Italians and American music. And I talked about how. So many people you don't realize that were Italian, like Connie Francis, and everybody knows Tony Bennett's Italian or yeah. Dean Martin, but they changed their names to be more American. And it and I went on and on and made Lady Gaga like this. The number of people throughout the decades, and that came from a patron, oh. as opposed to I might say, "Hey, which one of these should I talk about?" And they're all like, "Nah, eh, maybe none yeah. of them," and then, yeah. and then that's probably not the place exactly. to go.
2: Exactly. Yes, Nick, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for spending time with me. All right, listeners, Nick is taking an incomplete for the Mary question, but he's going to he's going to email me a clip. So I'll set it up for you and then I'm going to insert this after you. So Jay Armstrong (laughs) is a honors English teacher that is now retired in the Philadelphia area of all places. And when he was teaching, he would give his class the lyrics to Thunder Road. And then they would discuss the imagery that Bruce uses, the word choices, and then they would ask the class, does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? So that's your homework.
1: If I can, and I'm going to just posit this, and if I need to do extra credit, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. But having some sense of the song and having heard it at least a few times, Yeah. I'm going to say the answer is no. All right.
2: You want to explain?
1: yeah, to me, there there is there, that it's one of the quintessential road songs. I mean, it's right there in the name and the idea of moving forward in life and always keeping moving and you need to be in, in the midst of that, exploring it. There's an instinct that says that's not as easy to do when there's someone else you're beholden to. I don't know.
2: I love that answer. That's a great answer. No extra credit <laughs> needed. Oh, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. About 60% say yes, she gets in the car. But about 40% say no, she does
1: All All right. Wow. So yeah. So it's pretty yeah, good. I love the yes answer because it's romantic and I'm a romantic. Exactly. And I would exactly. do that I'd probably say yes, but I just have a feeling that it's And you.
2: There when you start talking about this, Mary has to take a leap of faith. This guy's saying, hey, let's pull it out of here to win. But <sighs> is he, it's, taking a risk is scary. And right. are you going to take that leap?
1: And yes. does she get the sense that taking that leap, is she just going along for somebody else's ride? Or is this ride for her too?
2: Exactly. And I think that is, and often we get that discussion of, no. One of my favorites is she Terry Smith who does a a wonderful music talks podcast his premise is pick a song from every decade you've been alive and then and basically he uses that as a way for you to tell your biography
1: i love that
2: oh it it, i'll send you the link yeah Yeah. so if like i was born in 59 so i had to pick a 50 60 70 80 90 and everything and and that's the only It doesn't have to be your favorite song. Doesn't have to be the song that means the most. It's just you pick a song. And but he said, no, she doesn't get in the car. Till later, he does some growing up and they find each other again. And then she gets in the car because they both are at a place where they can. They meet each other. So I
1: love that. I do too. Beautiful. Great. All
2: right. Nick, thank you so much nickdomadio.com. Go check out his podcast. Check out his music. Send him a note that you heard about him on Set Less Than Bruce. I just appreciate it so much. I am so proud. I've been wanting to get more members of the Pantheon siblings on the podcast, mm-hmm. so I really appreciate this. All right, listeners, go check it out. Be kind, be safe, and remember, if we open up our hearts, love won't forsake us. Just let the music take us and carry us home. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, listeners. We'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. There we go. Another episode. I'm about to go through a couple of things where you can reach me and give me feedback. Um, So if you want to skip this, I understand. But I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is available at Set Lusting Bruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can send me a voicemail at 469 249 2442. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, perfectly good podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z, where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. My Babylon 5 podcast is Last Best Hope for Conversation, where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon 5 in chronological order. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast with my brother in time, Charles Gaggs, And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast on the internet that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture. You can go to our Patreon page and support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rating and review for all of the podcasts that I'm doing. It's okay if you don't listen to them, but if you subscribe and rate, it really will make my day better. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only Set Listing Bruce. The theme for Set and Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission.